Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell, lead pastor at James River Church. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. We're in a series on Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, and we find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 18. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18 We've titled the series, Stand Strong, because Hebrews is a book about Jesus. It's a book about our salvation. And the more you and I know about Jesus, and the more you and I know about our salvation, the stronger we'll stand. We'll stand strong in the face of opposition. We'll stand strong in the face of trials. We'll stand strong in our relationship with Christ and with others, and it will strengthen your walk with God. It's been three weeks since we've been in Hebrews, so let me just kind of catch us up to speed with what's happening in Hebrews chapter 1. The writer wants us to realize that Jesus was not created. He is without beginning. He will be without end. He is not created. He is the creator. He is the one who created the universe. He is the one who sustains the universe, holds it together, literally. He is the one who owns the universe. Angels are created. Jesus is the one who created them. He is without creation. He is the creator. He is, the writer of Hebrews tells us, the radiance of God's glory. You want to see God's glory? Look at Jesus. Then he goes on to say he's the exact representation of his being. If you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. He is the exact representation of his being. On the basis of who Jesus is, on the basis of how great our salvation is, and I hope you realize just how great your salvation is, that it's not just something you check off the list. It's not something that, that, oh yeah, I got saved and now I move on. What else is next? No, your salvation is huge, what Jesus did. The writer of Hebrews cautions us not to drift away. He cautions us not to neglect so great a salvation. A neglected Christianity is an empty Christianity. You know, this past Christmas holiday, Debbie and I, we've got eight grandkids, and so we do a, a kids' camp, a cousins' camp in the summer. We do a cousins' camp in the winter, and I mean, it is, you get eight grandkids, ages 14 down through age six, and, and I mean, it is go, 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 and, and a lot of fun, just, you know, planned out to the exact second, lest they somehow get ahead of us, but... Uh, Part of what we did is, is they're collecting football cards, trading cards, so, so we helped them get some more, and they were showing them to me and asking me you know, different questions about different players. And so as we're looking at it, one of the grandkids says to me, they say, well, Grandpa, did you collect uh, football cards when you were growing up? And I said, no, where I was, uh, they weren't available, and so that wasn't something I did. And they said, well, did you collect some? I said, yes, I did. I collected coins. And you know, I had not looked at my coin collection in a long time, and so I thought, you know, I'll show them 
my coin collection. So, uh, you know, I go and I get it, uh, you know, get it out. And, and they're all, we're all at the kitchen table and they're like hovering around me. And, and you know, I'm, I'm like excited because, you know, I've got this coin collection. And, and so if, if you've collected coins or way back then, you know, there's these little blue books and, and inside they hold coins. And so I see the first one and I go to pick it up and I'm really excited. And this one, this particular one, if you got the close up on the camera, it's Lincoln Scent collection 1909 to 1940, number one. And so I pull it up like this and, and I open it up and the first thing they see is this. And I'm like, I'm like shocked. I'm like embarrassed. I'm like, what? So then I go like this thinking, okay, now they're gonna, and then I'm like, what? And then I go, so I think, well, surely the last page. And then I go like this and I'm like, so here I am trying to impress them with my coin collecting prowess, and instead, my coin collecting book is empty. How did that happen? Then I got to thinking. I filled some books, but then I started neglecting my coin collection. You see, I got busy. I bought a motorcycle. Who wouldn't rather ride a dirt bike than collect coins? I mean, come on. But at the same time, that's what happens to a lot of Christians. You know, I thought about that. There's a lot of you, and you got the cover. You just don't have anything in it. You got saved, but you neglected it. You, you, you got baptized over here. That's that coin. And you got in a life group over there. That's that coin. But there isn't anything else. And if you went to show somebody your Christianity, you would be embarrassed. You want to be careful you don't neglect so great a salvation. And one of the ways we don't neglect it is if we think about it, if we understand it, if we grow in our knowledge of who Jesus is, if we grow in our knowledge of what he did for us, it will help us to, to, be, to grow in our salvation, to fill up the folder, if you will, of what God has done for us and wants to do through us. So this morning, as we make our way through Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 5 through 18, I want to give you just two simple points. The first one is this. Jesus is the perfect Savior. He is the perfect Savior. Look at it, verse 5. It is not to angels that he subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. In the future, angels will not be the ones in charge. One of the results of the fall of man, the, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, is that instantly angels began to rule and reign in a different way. In fact, you can read in the book, and when we're talking about angels, we're talking about good angels, we're talking about evil angels. The most notable evil angel is Satan. Jesus called Satan in John's gospel the ruler of this world. Up to the time of the crucifixion, Satan was in charge. He had various angelic beings over different countries. And there are many who believe that even today, that's a reality. There are demonic spirits that influence regions of the world. Angels rule. But that was not God's original intent. In fact, the writer of, of Psalms in Psalms chapter 8 writes, and Hebrews is going to quote it, but there is a place, Psalm 8, 
where someone has testified, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? I mean, th this, is the, this is the psalmist saying, can you believe a God so big, so infinite, so vast, so powerful, is so personal that he cares about you? I don't know what you've heard. I don't know what you know or don't know. But you can know this. The God of the universe who spoke and it came into order is the same God who knows you and knows more about you than you know about yourself. Cares about you so much that Jesus says he numbers the hair on your head. And you don't even care about that. Well, maybe you do. But I mean, he knows more about you than you know. He says, what is man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In other words, what it's talking about is there was a time in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve were essentially the king and the queen. God had told them to rule. And the world was their servant. And everything cooperated with them in every way imaginable. And there was no disease, and there were no natural disasters, and there was no death. It was a perfect world with perfect people, and their ability to function in it was absolutely perfect. And then it says this, in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. What was God's will? God's will was that mankind would rule and reign on the earth, that everything, the wild animals would be subject to him, that everything would be subject to him. And yet we, the writer of scripture, is saying what you and I all know to be true. We do not at present see everything subject to him. You say, what happened? If you want to understand why the world is the way it is. If you want to know how things got like they are, all you have to do is go back to the beginning of your Bible and begin to read in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, where God created Adam and Eve, and he put them in a garden and Adam rebelled against God so that now nature is no longer our servant. In fact, it's against us. We are at odds with it, and everybody is at odds with everyone else. And the world is filled with conflict, and the world is filled with murder, and the world is filled with war, and the world is filled with famine, and the world is filled with disasters, and the earth, compared to what it was, is a terrible place to live. Furthermore, not only is the creation not subject to man, but man will not subject himself to God, and that is the root of every other problem. And the reason why I mention all of that is because if we're going to talk, start talking solutions to the problem, we ought to understand the source of the problem. And when we understand the source of the problem, then we know that the solution to the problem can't be government, can't be politics, can't be morality, can't be humanitarianism, can't be any other thing we want to add to it. The solution to the problem is what? Jesus. And that's God's answer, verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower 
than the angels. What that's talking about is Jesus, the Son of God, co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent with God, left the glory of heaven and came to earth, and in that moment identified with us. In that moment as a man, though he was never not God, he became a man. And in doing so, was lower than the angels. And he suffered death, and he tasted death. Look at it in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. Now crowned with the glory and honor, for he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, in bringing many sons to glory. So why did Jesus come? He came that you and I might share in his glory for all eternity. Now, you, you know, if, you, if, you don't, if you're not real familiar with the Bible, and even with you are, that's a very hard thing to understand. The one who in eternity past, before he came to earth, was adored by angels continually. The one who radiates a blazing, brilliant glory of God, worshiped by angels. The Bible says this in Romans chapter 8. It says that someday his glory will not only be revealed to us, but it will be revealed in us and through us. God's glory revealed through you, through all eternity in heaven. And it's, to me, I can't imagine what that is. We go on and we read this. It was fitting that God... Now, this is important because what a lot of people have a tendency to do is, is they want to second-guess God's plan. Well, I don't know why God didn't do this. I don't know why God doesn't do that. I don't know why God, you know, had to, you know, what's the big deal about sin? Why did he have to send, you know, his son? And why did the son have to die? And all of the things that foolish people ask. And I say that kindly, but I say it for truth because here is the God of the universe, infinite in wisdom, who knows everything instantly, equally, effortlessly. The God whose wisdom is so great, you and I will spend all eternity marveling at it, and here we are in our finite perspective our limited time of existence, and we're going to question what he's doing and why he's doing it? Better for us, rather than spending our time questioning what he's doing, is saying to ourselves, Lord, show me why you did it, because you do nothing without a reason. This is what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's saying it was fitting. In other words, God had a reason for this, and he's thinking about it, and he's meditating on it, and then he's sharing it with us. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. That immediately begs the question, I mean, who's the author of salvation? That's Jesus. Was there ever a time Jesus wasn't perfect? That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is, it's saying he's the perfect savior because he endured suffering and never sinned. He succeeded where you and I failed. I mean, honestly, we've all suffered 
And as we were suffering to one degree or another, found ourselves invariably asking God why it happened, questioning if God loved us, wondering what God was doing. In other words, or comparing ourselves to other people and saying, I don't know why I'm going through this and they're not, which is, is the envy and the jealousy and all the things that can happen. Maybe we had a bad attitude. Maybe we doubted God. But Jesus never had any of that. He suffered the worst that this life could put on a person. And yet, in all of that, he did it without ever sinning. That means he not only didn't say anything bad, he didn't think anything bad. He's a perfect Savior. Verse 11, but the one who makes men holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy, that's us, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, here's part of what God is doing. God is so committed to a family in eternity that is unified, that is bonded together, that one of the things God had in mind in sending his son Jesus to earth was that he might share in the human experience and out of that create a bond with humanity. Let me put it to you this way. If you've ever seen somebody who served in Vietnam and they have the Da Nang hat on or whatever hat, the, the battle, and, and if they see somebody with a Da Nang hat, instantly, they may have never met one another, but I'm gonna tell you what, instantly, they're bonded. They're together. Because they went something, through something so intense, so horrific, and they survived it without saying a word. They know what one another thinks. They know what one another feels. You could have the same thing with Marines who fought at Fallujah. They see that hat, or they start talking, and they realize, oh, you were in that battle. I was in that battle. Instantly, they don't have to say much more. And they're going to talk to one another and say things to one another they might not say to their, their mate. Because there's a connection, there's a unity, there's a bond. You can have people who maybe are weather a tornado or a hurricane together, and instantly there's that bond. Oh, you remember then, and, and, and if you meet somebody and they've gone through it too, instantly there's a connection because nobody understands a tragedy like somebody who's been through it. What Jesus did, what God did, God so wanted a unity in his family. And what this is celebrating is the fact that Jesus came so that he could experience what life on earth was like. Because honestly, we get to heaven, we're with him in eternity. He's never experienced it. He never knows it. He says, you know what? I know it was rough down there. And you would be thinking, you have no idea. But now, he's experienced the worst of this life. And the result is there is a unity with his people. He's our brother. And, and he is the one who stands with us. And together we're the children of God. Look at it. It's just beautiful. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am. And the children God has given me, we're all family. Jesus is our brother, and he knows exactly, exactly what it's like to face the obstacles, the difficulties, the pain, the loneliness, the sorrow, 
the abuse that this life can dish out? Jesus knows. He's the perfect Savior because he knows what that's like, but he did it all without sin. Number two, he's not only the perfect Savior, but Jesus is the personal Savior. He not only came to identify with humans, but he came to restore to us the dominion and authority that Adam lost. Now, this is really important because when, when God places Adam and Eve in the garden, perhaps you've never thought of this, but when he places them there, he says, I want you to rule and reign. That's Genesis chapter one. Multiply and subdue the earth. They're in the Garden of Eden. You could, you could think of it this way. The Garden of Eden was literally heaven on earth. Everything was perfect. Everything was wonderful. Everything was under the control of God. God would come at the start of the day and he would walk with Adam and Eve and they would talk and it must have been so wonderful. And, and God put Adam and Eve in the garden to tend the garden. And as they're there in the garden, the garden must have been very, very big because, I mean, all the animals come to him and he names them. And so, I mean, what you have here is you don't have, you know, a Neanderthal grunting around digging for roots out of the ground. This is mankind at his highest. This is mankind at his greatest ability, greatest knowledge, greatest physicality. We've devolved since then. No matter how smart we get, we're not even close to as smart as Adam. While he and Eve are there, God has them tending the garden. I don't know if you thought about that, but they're tending the garden. And this is before the curse. So this is before there's sweat. This is before there's fatigue. This is before you get tired. So they're tending the garden. So what is that like? A lot of people believe that part of what they did, because they're ruling like God rules. And how did God rule? How did God, how did God take care of the earth and shape the earth? He spoke, remember? So many believe that there is a, a power that Adam had in his words that you and I still have today to a much lesser degree. Life and death is in the power of the tongue. You shape your reality by the words you speak. Now listen, if you don't believe that, just go home and be crabby and say unkind things and, and, and just see what your reality is like. On the other hand, go home, say nice things, see what your reality is like. You get it? You're shaping what happens. So in the garden, very likely, he looked at a bush and said, that needs to be trimmed. Be trimmed. Wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, he's just walking around saying things. And it's happening. So they have this authority. And Satan, here's the thing about authority. Nobody can take it from you. You give it away. Satan can't take your authority. You have to give it away. So what did he do? He, Satan subtly deceives Adam, gets Adam and Eve to agree with him to rebel against God, and they surrender their authority to Satan so that now Satan, by the time Jesus is there in the Gospels, Satan is the ruler of the world. Adam and Eve gave their authority to Satan. So Jesus came to restore what Adam lost. Jesus came to undo what Adam did. Adam is known in the Bible in the New Testament as the first Adam. Jesus is the second Adam. Now look at it in verse 14. 
Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. I want you to think about this. There's something about his death that destroys him who holds the power of death, the devil. And watch this, and to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Without Christ, there is inherent with people, in people, a fear of death. Now listen, if there's no God, death wouldn't be fearful, it'd just be sad. Because it'd be the end of doing the things you love, the things you enjoy, or being with the people that you like to be around. But if there's a God, and if there's an accounting, and if there's an, a judgment, you say, well, not everybody believes that. Here's the thing. Everybody, not everybody might say they believe it, but Scripture's clear, Romans chapter 2, that God's law is written on everybody's heart. Everybody has a conscience. Everybody knows right from wrong. Everybody knows they're not perfect. How would they know that? Their conscience. Bears witness with them when they do good, accuses them when they don't. There is inherent in man, in the makeup of man, this sense that someday there is a right, there is a wrong, and someday I will have to give an account. And that doesn't mean that unbelievers live terrified lives. What it means is they deal with it and cover that fear primarily in one, day, one way, I would say. Denial. They just deny they deny God, because if, you, if there's no God, there's no accountability, so I don't believe in God. What they're saying is, I don't want to face judgment, I don't want to have to think about it, so if I don't think there's a God, then I don't have to think about it. Or they come up with their own philosophy. Usually it begins with, I think, like they're smart enough to know what's after life, though they've never been there, and they, they try to work through that to dull the, the thought that there's accountability. Now, we read on in verse... 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Now, how did Jesus' death, this is the question, how did Jesus' death destroy the devil and his power? The answer is in verse 17. Look at it. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers, in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement. Now, I put this word propitiation. This is a terrible translation, and, and most, most of the versions do it, and there's really no reason for it other than they don't think people can understand what this word is because it's not as common in our English language. But this word is a massive word. You say, well, I don't care about all the big words. Well, you need to care about all the big words because the big words have wonderful meanings that make the cross come alive to you. That help you really understand what the Savior did for you. What it cost him to do it. What he bore on the cross. All of that wrapped up in here. And he says that he might make atonement or propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, let me give you the reasoning here of, of that verse so you can kind of follow it. 
Jesus became like us so that he be, could become our high priest. Number two, in the Old Testament, the high priest was a representative of the people, so he had to be a, a people. He couldn't be outside. So a priest is a representative from the people of the people to represent them before God. Jesus, therefore, became a person so he could be a high priest so that he could represent the people by offering sacrifices for sin, which is what a priest does. The penalty of sin is death. Death is the consequence. And finally, Jesus had to be a human high priest so he could die as a perfect man and as a perfect human, sacrifice, take our place. You see, it was human sin. And, uh, and we're going to read later. You say, well, in the Old Testament, they had blood of bulls and goats. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. All it could do is remind the worshipers of their own sinfulness and of the price of their sinfulness. Jesus comes to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And a part of that was he became a propitiation for our sins. So let me define that for you. Propitiation, what is it? Jesus Christ bore God's wrath over our sin for us and made relationship with God possible. On the cross, not only is his blood shed to remove our sin, which theologically is called expiation. It's like it's gone. It's washed away totally. But on the cross, Jesus bore God's wrath over our sin. You say, oh, come on, John. I, I just, when people start talking about God angry and God wrath and all of that, I'm just so totally out on that. And that's tragic. Because in our contemporary Christianity, the wrath of God has honestly fallen on hard times. When you tell people that God's angry at sin, people recoil and are like, I don't get that. I don't know why he has to get angry about sin. It's almost like instead of God being the judge and judging us, we've reversed roles and we've made ourselves the judge and we judge God's character, we judge his intent, we judge his word, we judge his plan because we're God. It's a dangerous thing. So we do that in part because we don't understand God's righteous wrath. We have a tendency to frame God's attributes within the context and the confines of our human personality. So when we hear the word wrath, here's what a lot of people think. We immediately go in our mind to some emotionally unhinged response that's irrational, that's vindictive, that's cruel, that's harsh, that's uncontrolled. But God's wrath is not that. God's wrath doesn't mean that God flies into a rage. It doesn't mean that God is malicious. It doesn't mean that God is spiteful. It doesn't mean that God is vindictive. Maybe it will help you to think of it this way, that the opposite of wrath is not love. The opposite of wrath is neutrality. So when it comes to evil, God's wrath is directed at evil. God is not neutral. This, I would suggest to you, 
is one of the things that sets apart Christianity from all the religions of the world. Every other supreme being in those religions is God is, God is not neutral toward evil. They may be. Now look at it in Romans chapter, and I'm not going to take a lot of time with this, but I want you to understand the wrath of God because this is really important for you to grasp. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. When God exercises his wrath against evil, that, that is to say he is totally against evil. He refuses to condone it. He refuses to come to terms with it. And that's why he judges it. God's wrath against evil is a really good thing for you and me. Can you imagine an eternity where evil was not stopped? Can you imagine an eternity where, where God was indifferent, where he was neutral, where he was like, I'm sorry, it's just part of how it is would be a terrible thing. God's wrath is his active opposition to evil, and not just evil in general, but his opposition to and punishment of evil people. Now, people will say this. They'll say, well, you know, I just know this, and they quote it like it's a Bible verse. God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. And I get what people are saying. Number one, that's not in the Bible. Um, and I get what people are saying, but you have to stop and think. God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. God doesn't put sin in hell. He puts people in hell. And he does that not because he hates people, but he does it based on his justice. And he does it based on his wrath, which is his opposition to evil. He's opposed to evil, therefore he will judge it and he will stop it. Now, let me give you some just five things about wrath that will help you understand kind of the parameters of wrath. First of all, wrath, God's wrath is not like our wrath. God's wrath is not God losing his temper, flying into a rage, being uncontrolled. God's wrath, let me give you a definition, is his active, measured, just and appropriate, big word there, opposition to evil. God appropriately opposes evil. If, if you don't understand his active measure, just and appropriate opposition to evil, then a lot of what you see at the cross won't make sense. Number two, God's wrath is provoked. God's wrath is not something that's in him. It's not like God's wrath is not one of his attributes. It is a provoked response to evil. Wrath is not a part of who God is. It's his response to the evil that he sees. When you compare that to love, on the other hand, the Bible clearly teaches that God is love. That is his nature. Therefore, God's love Unlike his wrath, his wrath is provoked. It's a response to evil he sees. His love is not done that way. His love is who he is. It's not provoked, which is all to say this. He doesn't love you because he looks at you and says, they're so lovable. 
He doesn't love you because he looks at you and says, man, I really like, you know, he's a cool looking dude. I'm, I'm gonna love him. It, it's, it's not what you do. It's not who you are. He just loves people because he's love. Which is great news for all of us. Number three, God's slow to wrath. A person might say, well, if God is so opposed to evil, then why doesn't he wipe it out? Why doesn't he judge it when he sees it? That's the last thing you want him to do. You'll be a little pile of ashes right on your seat. Nobody wins if God instantly judges evil. All of us win because he gave us time to do what? To repent. Aren't you glad that before you repented, God didn't decide, I'm done with evil, that's it, and the door to grace was closed? God is patient. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. The day of judgment will come, but God is not in a hurry for it to come, because God is saying, as many as will come to me, I want them to come to me. So he holds the door open, lest at that moment that it shuts, the day of grace is over. Number four, God's wrath is already being revealed. People are already experiencing the wrath of God. Maybe you've not thought of that, but already people that don't know God live under his wrath and experience his wrath. If you go to Romans, you see Paul use this as part of his argument. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. How? Verse 24, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Next verse. God, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Verse 28, he gave them over to a depraved mind. There is a sense where you could say that the expression of God's wrath is when he lets people have what they want rather than what he wants for them. He just says, okay, do it. Okay, have it your way. And in that sense, if hell is the ultimate expression of God's wrath, then hell is a place for people who didn't want anything to do with God. Therefore, God said, okay, for all eternity, you'll have nothing to do with me. It's what you wanted. It's what you got. His, his wrath really is, in some sense, giving people what they want. It's tragic person says, I didn't want to get saved. I didn't want to serve God. I didn't want, I didn't want any of that, that, that church stuff and all that jazz. I didn't want the Bible. I don't want. So what would you, what do you think you'd like about heaven? You'd hate it. So God says, you don't, you won't be there. You won't have to worry about that. And the ramification of that is shocking and tragic. And here's the tragic thing. People think it's just shocking to live without God in eternity. Can I just tell you, it's equally tragic to live without him in time? God's wrath, number five, is on all sinners. Now. Today. That may surprise you to know that. There's the red-letter Christianity. It's people who are like, forget about Paul, forget about Peter, forget about John. We don't want it. We want to hear all those people. We just want to hear what Jesus has to say because all Jesus talks about is love, and that's just not true. 
Jesus said this. These are Jesus' words. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Now, let's stop here and think about this. Eternal life. What is eternal life? We're not talking about people living forever. Everybody's going to live forever. You're an eternal being as a human. You're, you're eternal. You'll live forever. The question is, where will you live? And what will that life be like? Eternal life is not a quantity of time. It's a quality of existence based on a relationship with God. Jesus defined eternal life for us. John 17, 3, he said, this is eternal life that they might know the one true God and your son whom you've sent. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know what eternal life is. It's a relationship with him that absolutely changes everything. And it brings the kingdom of God into your life and, and every sphere of your life in a way you can't begin to imagine that changes your life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son. What is the Son saying? Well, let me just tell you what he says in this chapter. Verse 7. Do not be surprised that I tell you, you must be born again. That's what the Son is saying. You have to be. He says, I, I tell you the truth. And anytime Jesus puts that down, you ought to underline it and listen to it. He says, I tell you the truth. Unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Have you been born again? And if not, why not? Do you realize it's a command? It's not just an offer. He says, you must be. That's a command. You have to be. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's shocking. Notice it doesn't say the wrath of God will come on him, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's already there. Listen, I, I could put it this way. In, when it comes to humanity, there are only two categories of people, and it's not male and female, it's not black and white, it's not rich and poor, it's not haves and haves nots, it's those who are under grace and those who are under wrath. Either you receive the free gift of God, which is eternal life, which one translation says, Jesus says, I came that you might have life and have it to the fullest, John 10, 10. One translation says, I came that you might have life more and better than you ever dreamed of. That's eternal life. And either you have that or you're under wrath. Back to Hebrews chapter two, verse 17. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make propitiation, that he might bear on our behalf God's wrath, his hostility toward evil. So think of this on the cross. As he hangs there on the cross, the Bible says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. God placed all of our sin on him. And then God's 
holy, just, opposition to and judgment of evil and sin. He poured out all of that that was humanity's sin. He placed on Jesus and he poured out all of the wrath that all humanity deserved on one person. helps you understand why he would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's in that moment, the fury of God's judgment on sin is poured out on him for you and for me. So that we would not know his wrath, so that we would not experience his wrath so that we would be free. So God, if you're a believer, he's no longer angry at you. You say, well, you know, I just feel like sometimes he's kind of upset at me or he's kind of put out at me. No, 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 Jesus bore all that. You say, well, I just can't seem to get over what I did and what blah, 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 blah. And I get it, it can be big what you did, but it's gone. Gone. His blood washed it all away. You say, well, I just wonder what God thinks. He doesn't remember it. It's gone. So why do you? Do you see how wonderful this salvation is? That God would love you so much, that Jesus would love you so much, that he would come and bear that for you. That you might have relationship with him and know the love of God. Now verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. You say, it's really tough right now. Jesus knows what it's like. You say, it's hard, I'm struggling. Jesus knows, he knows what it's like to be tempted. He didn't sin, he didn't give in, but he knows. And the writer of Hebrews is gonna build on this idea of he suffered, he was tempted, he knows he's able to help. And how does he help us? Look at this in chapter 4 and verse 16, and we'll close. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. That, that idea of boldness, with the idea of tell God what you need. Don't shrink back. Don't say, well, well, he won't understand. Or, or what, if, what, if, what if he judges me? No, no, that's been taken care of. You can approach the throne of grace. And you're gonna, what are you going to get from God? Mercy. What is mercy? Not give, God not giving us what we deserve. And you're gonna get grace, that's God giving us what we don't deserve. You're gonna get God being good to you, coming and going forwards and backwards, upside down. God will help you because God loves you because we have a perfect Savior because we have a Savior who is awesome. We have a personal Savior. He knows where you're at. He knows what you need, and he loves you.